I can't tell you how many times people come into my office with a stack of envelopes that they've never opened. They're nervous. They're nervous. What does it say? Oh my God, I owe this money. I'm never going to be able to pay it off. What do I do? They don't realize again that they could lose the driver's license or the passport and that there are certain things they could do. First of all, maybe they're currently not collectible. Maybe it pays for them to let the government take money out of their salary. New York State only takes 10% of the gross wages. The IRS is the exact opposite. They take almost everything and leave you nothing. It's really a negotiation tactic to come and say, hey, let's talk. What could we do here? There are a number of opportunities to call the government. They may be taking money out of your bank account. How many times is there a levy? So on the federal level, they give you notice in advance. You get a number of notices, and then one is the last one that says final notice of intent to levy. They're about to take money out of your bank account. You could go to an appeal. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Karen Tenenbaum, founder of Tenenbaum Law PC. Karen is an attorney for over 35 years, and her firm helps individuals and businesses facing IRS and New York State tax problems. Karen and her team have successfully represented clients in matters including federal and state audits, New York State residency audits, and New York State sales tax audits. Karen is a frequent speaker on IRS and New York State tax issues for numerous professional groups on topics such as New York State residency, IRS and New York State collections, and many, many more. She can also be found speaking at some of the top conferences and symposiums for the industry, including the NYU Tax Controversy Forum, the National Conference of CPA Practitioners Accounting and Tax Symposium, as well as the New York State Society of CPAs. Karen's knowledge and leadership have established her as a preeminent tax attorney in the New York area. Karen was selected as a New York super lawyer as a practitioner in tax law, and has been quoted frequently in Bloomberg Business News, Money Magazine, Long Island Business News, The Daily News, and many, many more. Listen in for some great takeaways regarding taxes and what to do when you might have an issue. Not to mention, if you are a telecommuter or looking to take up residence outside of New York State or wherever you currently reside. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the pleasure of being with somebody who's on Long Island, local to us, and actually here in the office, Karen Tenenbaum, founder of Tenenbaum Law. Thanks for joining us today, Karen. Thank you, Larry, for having me. It's great to actually see somebody live in the studio rather than doing this thing virtually, so I think things are getting better, hopefully. So, Karen, I want to give our audience a sense of what and who you are and your path to founding Tenenbaum Law. How did you get here and why did you start it? What was the impetus? So I'm a tax attorney and a CPA. I started out at large accounting firms like Deloitte. And I've always come from an entrepreneurial family. My parents had their own business and my brothers are involved. And we would sit around the kitchen table on a regular basis and talk about all sorts of business issues. And I always knew that I wanted to help out small businesses. And what better way to do it than being both an accountant and an attorney. So I have my own firm, Tenenbaum Law in Melville. 
And I'm proud to say that we just celebrated 25 years. Congratulations. We That's quite an, the milestone. Thank you. We have an amazing team. I'm actually doing it for 38 years. We have an amazing team. We have a, an administrative staff, a legal team, a financial group, a marketing team. And we're very lucky to be one of the New York Law Journal's largest women-owned law firms. And we've been named top tax law firm by both the New York Law Journal and the Long Island Business News. And we're one of the few female-owned firms that earn more than uh, seven figures. I think the percentages are something like two to three percent of women-owned businesses uh, make more than a million dollars. And we've been lucky enough over all these years to uh, have a great reputation and really help our friends and our taxpayers and our clients and our colleagues through the years to continue to get great referrals. That's amazing. And Coming from an entrepreneurial family, I'm sure that gave you a head start. So tell us, the accounting and the legal, where was the interest in bringing those two together? Because there aren't that many people out there that actually do that. Yeah, it was actually a natural fit. So when I first started out after working at Deloitte in the city, I was actually in the World Trade Center. We would have been a direct hit. We were the 101st floor of the North Tower. I think the plane hit the 99th floor. But in 93, when there was a bomb in the basement, Deloitte was smart enough to move out. But I was already on Long Island at law firms. And at that time, I was all things to all people. I was doing estate planning. I was doing corporate deals, real estate deals, the tax consequences. And I was also handling tax controversy matters. And I realized after a while that you can't be all things to all people at all times. And I really enjoyed the negotiating with the government and helping the taxpayers. And so when I started my own firm, I narrowed my niche. I had already had some speaking engagements relating to residency. And I became well-known on Long Island to do New York State residency matters. And we could talk about that in a few minutes. But once I got the itch to help taxpayers, these are people who claim they moved to Florida or elsewhere. My husband always says, you know, is it exciting to be a tax attorney? And I say, you know, every day is a soap opera because you hear the most interesting stories and you meet the most interesting people and you really get to help them. Some of these people really have changed their lives, moved to Florida, changed their pattern of life. And New York State still claims, you know, that you're here, whether for income tax purposes or estate planning purposes. So I really loved being able to keep up with the law at the same time, have a work-life balance and really do something good. So I'm the strategist. I see (laughs) the big picture. How do you get through the forest and get a good result for these taxpayers? Yeah. So we, we handled not just state matters, but we also do that on the federal level. Yeah, I think you said something very important there, right? You didn't want to be everything to everyone. And I think a lot of business owners and even some people who might be listening to us today feel, especially when you first start your business or practice, that you have to be everything to everybody because you don't want to turn away business. And quite frankly, I've learned over the years and we've implemented here, we don't want to be everything to everybody. We want to be everything to a small select right group of people. And if we do that, we could build something that's really scalable and really special. And when you try to go so wide, it makes it difficult to do that. So kudos to you for learning that very early on before you started, because a lot of entrepreneurs don't find that out or figure that out till uh, well into their careers. It also helps to have a niche practice and be a boutique firm because that, you know, in the old days when you had a Rolodex card that had a tab, when do you pull out that tab? And so in order to stay top of mind and have people know when to call you, If you have a niche, now they know. Yeah, pretty easy. So listen, to your point, most people are familiar with why they would need to work with a tax professional, right? A CPA, an accountant. You know, do you do taxes? So I don't file tax returns. We work very closely with a lot of accountants and other professionals, including investment advisors and and financial wealth advisors. We handle the problems. 
So when you get a notice from the IRS or New York State that you're either being audited or you owe money or you haven't filed for many years, open those envelopes <laughs> and deal with it. A lot of people don't, right. but we're the ones who can help you. So if they're taking, if you owe money and they're taking money out of your bank account or your wages, or they're putting a lien on your house or your property or in New York state, a warrant, or you need to pay over time an installment agreement, or you want to pay less than you owe an offer in compromise, or you're just being audited and you have to provide documentation. Yes, we could work with your professional, your CPA, but sometimes they're not always so familiar with the specific rules the procedural rules dealing with the government or the specific rules uh, relating even to residency. Is that where the legal part comes in? And because like I said, people typically know accountant, taxes, CPA, taxes, attorney, legal work. I have a problem. I need to sue or investigate. So you've kind of brought these two together. So how does that make you different from them individually, if you will. Right. So we get a lot of referrals from accountants and usually it's, let's go back to the residency for a moment. So let's say the accountant had a a great client for 40 years and he said, you know, oh, I see you're spending a lot of time in Florida. Why don't you change your residency and file this way? We're not going to be a New York state resident anymore. And now they get a notice from New York state that they're being audited. So they think they moved, you know, year one, but in year two, they sold their business for $42 million. New York State came in and sent them a bill for $6 million. All of a sudden, that accountant is saying, oh, my God, I'm going to lose my best client. Maybe I need some help here. They probably handled the audit, probably couldn't even charge the client because they're the ones who recommended the, you know, gave that advice. change of residency. Right, change of residency. And so now they'll say, almost like, Karen, here's the hot potato, catch it, help me, make me look better. And we always get a better result than they started with. So you need to have both the tax background for that purpose, and you also need to have the legal background in order to, I guess- not litigate, but handle the matter on their behalf. Is that right? Right. And I also have a, an LLM, a master's of law and tax from NYU. So I've done all the education and now 38 years of experience, wow. uh, which is key. But we also do a few other things that not every accountant is even aware of. So let's say you didn't file your tax return. You might be able to do a New York state voluntary disclosure. If you get to the government before they get to you, there's a three to six year look back period. You don't have to file all your returns. A lot of the accountants say, oh, my God, this person didn't file for seven years. I'm going to file all the returns. Federal and state, they end up with taxes, penalties and interest where they could have avoided the penalties and maybe a few years of the filing if they started with the New York State Voluntary Disclosure. And when I mention this to some people, they're not even aware of it. These are accountants that have been practicing for many years. So maybe you could give our listeners, right, if they're listening to this, they're a business owner, an entrepreneur, an individual Maybe you could give them a 10,000 foot view because it seems like the areas that you cover are very wide, right? And what areas you help clients with? I mean, secondarily, do people come to you directly or are you typically brought in by an accountant or another professional like an attorney to help them fix their problem? Or are the individuals coming to you and what are those areas that you're really focusing in on to help them, whether they come to you directly or through their accountant or attorney, if you will. So we represent both individuals and businesses. We get a lot of referrals from accountants, attorneys, and financial advisors, bankers, anyone who knows the person's financial situation. It could be a bankruptcy attorney, a matrimonial attorney, a corporate attorney, anyone who might be involved in a transaction. So in a lot of cases, the individuals aren't coming directly to you. But also separately, we have a great website and we get a lot of good reviews. And so through the website, we do get a lot of hits and a lot of calls directly from the taxpayers. It's funny because during COVID, I would say that increased tremendously. 
the digital marketing, I guess, worked, mm-hmm. new website. And so things like that, you might be up at two in the morning, all nervous that you got to notice that your New York State driver's license may be taken away because you owe money to New York State or your passport might be taken away because you owe money to the IRS. And now the travel is starting again, you may need that passport and maybe you can't renew it because you owe a certain amount of money. So I think it's over $54,000 now on the federal level and 10,000 on the state level. And a lot of people need that driver's license. So what we find is the second you owe money and you do open that envelope and you say, it's time to deal with it, you're gonna contact somebody. Who do you contact? So I'm the perfect person because we handle those situations on a regular basis and we get pretty good results. And then you always hear all these ads on TV, pay less than you owe to the government. Those are offers in compromise and we can handle that as well. Or you want to pay over time an installment agreement, or you're currently not collectible. A lot of these situations require negotiating with the IRS or New York State. Right. And you've done that effectively, it seems like. So that's great. Your reputation precedes you. So one of the things, and you alluded to it earlier, one of the things that have been a great area of growth since the pandemic came on is telecommuting, right? So people are now working from home a lot more. In certain instances, they may have even moved to a completely different state. We have a lot of companies that have now kicked it down the road in terms of allowing people to continue working home. We've even had companies say that they're going to go home indefinitely. They're never coming back to the office. And in certain cases, even we've seen companies that are saying they're going to do cost of living adjustments for these people if they've moved to a lower cost state and they're going to continue to work, they're not going to necessarily get the same salary. So this has been a huge area. And how has this affected potential issues for people that this applies to? Because I would imagine if you were a New York state resident, now you relocate to another state that New York state still is looking for their tax revenue. Maybe they haven't caught up to realize you've left yet. So how has this changed what you do and How has it changed for the people working? So this is one of the biggest areas. We get calls on this every single day. So it raises so many different issues. So let's say you were a New York State resident. You're going to be taxed on all of your income, no matter where it was earned. No matter where you're physically working, you're taxed in New York if you were a New York State resident. If you lived in another state but worked in New York, you're going to still pay New York taxes, but only on the wages you earned in New York. So now this gets a little confusing. So now what happens during a pandemic where you normally worked in New York, New York State, and now all of a sudden that office is closed. You can't even go to that office. Forget about what we're going to do in the future. Let's talk about what happened starting March of 2020. So people worked out of their parents' basement in Connecticut, or now a lot of people are just trying different states and different countries because you could telecommute from anywhere. So do you end up with double taxation? Are you taxed where you're physically working from? New York State came out with frequently asked questions, FAQs, and they said, nothing has changed. If you once worked in New York, and that was the the principal office, nothing has changed. You're still taxed in New York, unless you meet one of the exceptions, which is your employer has said that it's a, you have a new bona fide office location where you're telecommuting from. And now all of a sudden, it's very hard to jump through those hoops and meet those requirements. So you might end up with owing tax to New York, owing tax to another state possibly, and there might be double taxation, but there also may be some credits. And a lot of the employers don't know where do I withhold from? And a lot of the employees don't know what to do as well. Where should I file a tax return? What we're seeing is New York State sent out a number of notices already for people who e-filed tax returns early. 
And they're asking, they're saying, you see that, let's say you were a non-resident and that previously you allocated wages to New York in a certain way, and now it's changed. Why has it changed? Right. And so prove why it should be different. And one great thing about New York State that's on their side is they have the benefit of hindsight also. So let's say you say, I've changed my residency. I no longer want to live in New York. This is a typical situation. I moved out in March of 2020. I'm never coming back. Well, now they might audit you two or three years down the road. Did you come back? Okay. So at the time you said, I'm never coming back, but now things are opening up again. You know what? That's where the action is. Maybe I'm coming back. So if you were once a non-resident, there were one set of rules, but if you were once a resident, you now have the burden of proof by clear and convincing evidence that you moved out. And we could talk about all the factors and things that you have to look at. We used Florida as a typical example, but there are so many other states right. and so many other examples and so many things that have to be looked at. And most people say, oh, the driver's license, I've changed my driver's license, my reg voter registration, but there's it's so much more than that. And those are really only the secondary other factors they're not even the primary factors. Right. And I think the big thing is, like you said, the burden of proof is on you as the taxpayer to prove that whatever you were doing or whatever you were claiming is right. It's not on them to prove you were wrong or you were right. It's on completely on you to show them that how you filed is the way that things are. And that's only if you were once a New York state resident and you're now trying to show that you moved out. If you were always out and they're trying to claim that you moved in like Derek Jeter, then the state has the burden of proof. So it's whoever is trying to prove that there is a change. Right. So that's actually quite interesting. So I once represented somebody who was a Florida resident. Clearly, he was born there. He went to school there. He went to law school there. He got married there. His kids were born in hospitals there. And he was very active there. At one point in time, his wife, who was originally from New York, said, let's get some, let's buy a house in New York. And when they got divorced and they sold the house, New York came after him saying, you have connections to New York. Right. And he said, wait a minute. So there's a domicile, but there's also statutory residence, a residency, which is you have a permanent place of abode, a house, and now you spend more than 183 days here. And even though you don't call this home, New York State calls it home. Right. And so in that situation... We said, wait a minute, he didn't really have a permanent place of abode. We don't care about the day count. It was his wife's house. He did not have unfettered use and access to come and go. He didn't have the key. He needed permission to see those kids. And so he was always in Florida. And by the way, New York State, you have the burden of proof. And we won that case because he didn't have a permanent place of abode. Right. So for those people that are listening that may be telecommuting currently, right? What do they need to know? What are some tips that they should really be cognizant of so they wouldn't need to contact you? Or maybe they still will because they'll still have to prove that this is fact, right? Are there proactive steps that they should be taking and thinking about in order to avoid a problematic situation if they're telecommuting? Right. Well, first of all, you have to know what the rules are, right? So again, if you were always a New York State non-resident, you owe taxes to New York on the wages that- Meaning somebody they, who lived in New Jersey, let's say, because that's close, right? New Jersey Bordering and Connecticut, state, right. Let's say New Jersey and Connecticut, and they were commuting to Manhattan to work every day. That would be an example. Is that right? Exactly. Now, so New Jersey had some rules during COVID that just changed. So there might've been a, a slight relief okay. for them. So we won't talk about them. And Connecticut now allows a credit. So you might be able to avoid some of the double taxation, but first you have to know did you owe money to New York State? And again, if your principal resident, if your uh, principal place of business was always in New York, 
and you were a non-resident, you're still paying taxes here. Now let's talk about somebody who I mentioned earlier might have, let's say, lived in New York City, had an apartment in New York City and worked in New York City. And March of 2020 said, I don't have to be in New York City. I'm going to go to my vacation home in the Hamptons. Okay. They were a New York state resident. Which happened a lot, by the way. Which happened a lot. A lot. Right. They're a New York state resident and a New York City resident. And now they might want to avoid the almost 4% New York City tax. So they say, oh, I'm going to move to the Hamptons. But did they move? So again, this was their New York State and New York City have similar rules for the residency and the domicile. So did they move? When did they move? Was it March of 2020 when they said, oh, we don't know how long this pandemic is going to be? Or was it in September when their lease was up and they gave up their lease? They no longer have a place in the city. And now they're working out of their living room in the Hamptons. Right. Well, has anything changed? Well, maybe at that point they've changed their domicile. So maybe they've avoided the New York City tax not the New York state tax. Right. Now what happens two or three years later? Are they moving back? And if they did move back, was it their intent to really change? So what is residency and domicile? Where the heart is. Home is where the heart is, right? It's a subjective intent. Yeah, so how do you prove that? If the burden of proof's on me, how do I prove that my intent was to go out there permanently, but then when things ultimately settled down, I had a change of heart and decided to go back. How do you do that? Right. So it's a very big burden. And this is what I do for a living. So this is exactly, you know, my- You'll never go out of business. Right. And you know, it's funny because it started many years ago. Originally, I think as a sales tax thing, New York State said, oh, I see in front of the country clubs, it says a car has a Florida uh, license plate or in front of the marinas. Are these people here? You know, are they paying sales tax? And then it turned out to be an income tax thing. And it was uh, the Revenue Opportunity Division at that time, we're dating ourselves, going back 30, 40 years. And then they realized, you know what? This is a regular thing. And New York State makes so much money on this audit program every single year. And they need the money, too. So they're willing and and very willing and able to go after it. So that person that you referenced before who worked in the city, lived in the city, then relocated to the Hamptons to work, their intent was whatever, to stay there. What, if anything, could they have done to prevent having New York State coming at them? Or no, probably New York State would come and inquire with them no matter what. And then it's just a matter of trying to successfully defend themselves. Is that pretty much it? Right. So if you earn a certain amount of money, New York State's coming after you no matter what. It's almost guaranteed. So there's not a lot that you could really do proactively to avoid it. Well, also, there are certain events that take place. So if you're buying and selling a business or buying and selling property, that might trigger an audit as well. Because there's a big money transaction. There are five primary factors that matter when we're looking at domicile. So when we talk about burden of proof, you want to look at, again, it's a subjective intent, but you're looking at objective factors to see, you know, you want to check all the right boxes. And so if you were planning in advance, you could get documentation and keep documentation, right? So if you know in advance what you're looking to do, you would keep copies of certain things and do certain things. So the first thing is the house. So if you had a place, they're going to compare what you had before and what you claim you have after. So whether it's New York to the Hamptons or New York to Florida, where were you living? How big was the space? What did, how did you use it? So home is one thing, business involvement. So a lot of people have closely held business. Maybe they're going to, quote, retire or semi-retire, and someone else in their family may be taking it over, a son or a daughter. They have a big retirement party. Maybe they put a big something in the, the local paper saying how wonderful this guy was. You know, you want to keep things like that to show that maybe he's not involved in the day-to-day business as much as he once was. But because of the pandemic, maybe he got involved with the PPP money. Maybe he started signing documents or giving advice more on a daily basis. Guess what? 
you're still involved. Wow. So they look at the day-to-day involvement. Are you the decision maker? So they're comparing before and after. So we said house, we said business involvement. We'll talk about the time factor in a minute because it's different than the 183-day requirement. They look at items near and dear, you know, the dog. Where do you keep the dog? The CEO of Match.com was involved in a case. He had this beautiful place in Manhattan. They asked him to be the CEO of Match.com in Texas. He said, I love what I do in New York. They said, please move. He wrote a letter at the time that said, an email, I'm moving. And he also said, I'm taking the dog. And, you know, what's the teddy bear rule? Where's your, where's your dog? Where's your right. teddy bear? When he moved, even though he came back a year and a half later, he must have had very good representation. He won. He won. That was you right. know one of the few cases where the taxpayers win on something like right. that, where the dog is. So they also look at, so the items near and dear are not just valuable items. They're sentimental things as well. Where are your photo albums? And then they look at insurance policy. So again, if you're planning in advance and you know you have a big wine collection or a big art collection in Florida, change the insurance policy. You'd be surprised how many people keep everything in New York. The diamond ring is still on the insurance policy in New York. They also look at family connections. Where do the minor children go to school? And that used to be a very easy factor. But now, of course, with everyone with remote learning and whatever, it it changed a little bit. But now let's just talk about the time factor. So the time factor is not for this purpose, the domicile rules, the 183 days, that's for statutory residency. Just a comparison. Have you changed your pattern of life? Did you get involved in activities in the new community? How much time did you spend in New York before? And how much are you spending now? And how much time are you spending in the new location? Like a two to one ratio is probably pretty good. And you have to be careful about keeping that calendar. You have to prove where you are every single day. It's crazy. You don't know where you are. They assume New York. And those are the five primary factors. There are also other factors. Again, the driver's license, the voted registration, things like that, that everyone thinks are so important. Where you actually vote is important. But I have to say that most people, if you talk to an estate planning attorney, that's not necessarily from New York, let's say they're from Florida, they talk more about those secondary other factors. And that's the wrong advice. Because I was once on a panel with a number of people and I said, send me all of your clients because every one of them is going to have an issue if all you're telling them to do is change your driver's license and your voter registration and your car registration. So I think my takeaway on the telecommuting aspect of things are that if you are in a situation where you're a high income earner selling a business, something along those lines, chances are if you were one of those folks that relocated to the Hamptons from New York City, at some point, you're probably going to get a letter in the mail and then it's going to be important that you get the right folks on your side to help you navigate it. It's not doesn't mean that you're not going to be able to be successful. It's just not going to be as easy as you thought getting up and relocating in the middle of a pandemic would be and nothing to worry about. Right. Oh, excuse me. And, and another thing is that these letters come with a questionnaire and a lot of people fill out the questionnaire. You've put some things in writing that you might not know are going to hurt you. Yeah. It's like so, the Miranda rights. Once you get that, you should be consulting an attorney, I would imagine. Correct. Right. And sometimes you have your accountant fill it out. And again, they might not necessarily know all the rules. So I'll give you one example. Again, this is intent, right? If you're changing your domicile, it's intent. And we once represented somebody and the, I don't know if it was the accountant or the taxpayer who filled out the questionnaire and it said, oh, my wife doesn't want to move until the children finish a certain level of school locally. Well, okay. So then you haven't changed your domicile, right? You specifically said in writing. You pretty much answered their question the way they wanted you to answer it. And then you're pretty much on the hook at that point. Right. So the argument there was that the husband and wife have a separate lifestyle and that the husband moved. He was the big breadwinner. He was the one who had the big event, maybe selling his business. And so, yes, the husband and the wife 
lived separately. The wife stayed in New York and the husband moved. And so you, know, you have to go down that path. All of a sudden you're creating different issues. They could have filed separately on the state level. They could have mar- filed mar- married filing joint on the federal level and married filing separately on the state level had they thought of it in advance. If not, otherwise you now have to say you have a difference. <laughs> it's not consistent. Right. Right. Interesting. So one of the other things now we're going to shift from telecommuting yeah. for a minute to residency changes, which we talked about. Obviously, that's been a you know a hot topic, especially here in New York. People looking to get out of here because of the pandemic, because of taxes, as well as a host of other reasons. I know personally through our clientele, we've gotten a number of questions from people who are looking, thinking about relocating. Either they already have another residence there, and they're looking to make. Florida or another state, their primary residence, or they're looking to buy something there. We just had a conversation with somebody yesterday who basically said he's going to look later this winter. He's going to look into a place in Florida, and he wanted to know if his wife has no interest in going to Florida, if he goes down there and would it be able to work out? And my answer to him was, you should definitely consult with a tax attorney to see what you should be doing because it may not fly with you down there. Well, I know the 180, you know, the, all the typical things that you're probably used to hearing, right? If you're a New York state resident, because I think that's the easiest one and most common looking to claim Florida as a residency, what are some problems that people run into when they're looking to do that? Right. So everyone thinks the rule is right six months in a day, but that's not really the only rule they need to know. One thing you're bringing up, which is very key, is something called a creeping change. So we represented somebody who in one year, I'll say 2014, uh, bought a place in Florida. In 2015, renovated it. In 2016, had an art and wine collection sent to Florida. The next year, 2017, did whatever great things he did. And in 2018, for the first time, he files as a Florida resident, not a New York resident. New York comes in and gives him a bill for a quarter of a million dollars and says, when did you move? You know, prove that you moved. When did you move? Now, because of COVID, we were able to come in. Usually you need some kind of event that took place. You got married, you got divorced, you retired, something, you got a new job. Why did you move? When did you move? They usually want a specific date. I moved on this specific date. And then I consistently did all these other things, got a new driver's license, et cetera. Now, what happens when it took place over all these years? Okay. So normally when you go to Florida, you go October through May this year because, or that year because of COVID, they couldn't come back. And so I said to New York State, I have a great idea. Let's do a global settlement. So this was 2018. It's going to cost the taxpayer a little money. Because of what took place, he really moved before 2020, right? We're going to say he moved October of 2019. And so we'll pay you a little money in 2018. We'll pay you a little money in 2019. And now he's gone. And let me tell you how significant that is. We're talking about income taxes, but it really relates to estate taxes. Right. Here's a guy who has significant assets all over the place. And when you change your domicile, it's changed until you change it back. It's changed forever. Whereas the statutory residency is every single year, that 183-day count. So here I saved him a little money. It may have cost him a little money, but I saved him a little money on the income taxes. And now for estate tax purposes, he's not a New York state resident. He's a Florida resident. Hmm. And that's very significant. And so a creeping change could hurt you. There's a famous case, the Campanello case. This guy had significant connections to New York, and then he made significant connections in Florida, but he did it over time. And it was both his business and his personal connections. 
And New York State said, no, you lose. You lose. It took place little by little, dribs and dribs, and that's not good. And a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to retire in a number of years. Let me start planning now. And that's great, but you got to decide on what day did I move. So what are some things, if I'm a New York State resident listening to this and I want to relocate, what are some things, are there the top three things that I, or five things that I should be thinking about that I should start getting in order so that I have what I need when they come knocking? Because it sounds like they're going to come knocking no matter what. It's just a matter of being properly prepared for when they do. Right. So we discussed the five primary factors already. That's for a change of domicile. And if you think you've already moved and you think you're going to win, now let's talk about the statutory residency piece. So that's, do you have a permanent place of abode in New York? And are you spending more than 183 days here? And if you are, you're going to be taxed as a resident. Again, taxed on all your income, no, no matter where it's earned or derived. And so you want to keep track of those day counts. So a lot of people say, oh, I have no problem. I keep a calendar. Yeah, but you know what? They subpoena your cell phone records and they're not always reliable. They're not based on GPS. They're based on cell phone towers. Mm -hmm. So if you're driving from New Jersey to New York or Connecticut to New York, guess what? It's pinging off New York towers every five minutes. And so it shows inconsistent data. Right. So you could be driving for an hour. And the burden is on you. And the burden is on you to show where you are every single day. Right. It's one thing if it's New York to Florida, but if it's Connecticut to New York, New Jersey to New York, it's local. So you could be back and forth. Yeah. They're looking at easy pass records. And there are a lot of false positives. Maybe your dry cleaner charges you on the 15th of every month for something. And maybe, you know, you're there, you're not even there. So there are certain things that you have to look for. I think Martha Stewart had a case where the limousine took her from uh, the Hamptons to the city and it never said who was in the car. And she says, oh, props were in the car. I wasn't even in the car. Right. But you have the burden of proving who was in that car. So besides those five tests, are they? Factors, Bes factors. Besides Again, it's, those it's five factors, thing, yeah. are there anything else other than those that people should be thinking about? in order to ease their burden? Yes. So again, you really want to keep documentation. So one thing I always say is the moving bill. You want to pick a specific day and you don't want to just put everything in the backseat of your car and drive to Florida or drive wherever you're going. You want to hire a moving company. Right. And you want it insured and you want a list of every single thing that got moved. You want to be able to prove on this day, I did the following thing. Here's a piece of paper, New York State Auditor, because they may have just tunnel vision. They might not see the bigger picture. They might not have the same lifestyle where you could have a house here, a house here, and money, and furnish both places, and not have to move your furniture, and buy clothes in both places. So they might not be able to relate to that. Right. So it wouldn't make it very easy for them. Show them a moving bill. Show them an insurance policy. Show them very clear pieces of paper. So we represented somebody who sold his business for a lot of money, and- the accountant gave over all of the documentation relating to the buy-sell and the three-year consulting agreement for that for after, showing he's coming back to New York. Certain things you might not want to give over right. so quickly. Right, <laughs> right. So if you have an issue, you really want to have that legal component, not just the accounting component in it. I'll tell you so. one other thing. So I once represented an attorney, and he gave me some kind of affidavit. The first opening sentence of the affidavit is something like, every time I come to New York, I said, why mm -hmm. would you start with that? Right. You're trying to prove you're not in New York. You're already would, opening up the can of worms. That's right. right. There. Why would you say uh, that every time yeah, I come to New to, York? So, you have to be thoughtful in your response. Right. So just because you're a litigator or an attorney doesn't necessarily mean you know the rules in this specific case. Right. Whatever you say can and will be used against you, I guess. Right. 100%. So let's shift for a minute, yes. right? Yeah. Away from the residency piece. Sure. So one issue that we've run into and you help clients with are taxpayers who have either a vacillating income or a huge income in a given year where they don't pay enough taxes, right? Like we've had authors that we work with that have a hit book 
all of a sudden, $800,000 in revenue that they didn't have the year before, think that there no taxes are owed, go out and buy a house, maybe cash, a car, things of that nature. What are some tips for people in this type of situation, typically like authors or entertainers where they have this huge windfall perhaps coming in in a given year? So we see this regularly. And it's not just those types of people, it's people who have a business. So in one year you do great and the next year you don't do as great. And so whether you're an individual or a business, you can have vacillating income. And so you might end up with a bill. And so also there are certain liabilities that flow through personally. So let's say your business was having a problem and you had withholding taxes or sales tax that you didn't pay over to the government. They're deemed trust funds and they're going to flow through to the responsible people. There's trust fund taxes, trust fund recovery penalties and responsible person assessments in New York state. And they're coming after you personally. So even if you close your business, you may owe this and you're not getting rid of it in death or in bankruptcy. And so there are certain things that you could do. So if it's a trust fund penalty, not 100% of the taxes flow through to the individual, only certain a certain percentage of it. And so every time you make a payment, if you write it on a check, apply to trust fund taxes only. And so it will reduce your liability. You might not know about that. You might just be sending it electronically or sending a check and letting them apply it. The IRS is going to apply it in the best way for them, unless you specifically say how you want it applied. Now, if you enter into an installment agreement, or uh, an offer in compromise, they're going to apply it based on their agreement, which is, again, in their best interest. Because they want that covered, yeah. But there are a number of things that you could do if you owe taxes. First of all, I can't tell you how many times people come into my office with a stack of envelopes that they've never opened. They're nervous. They're nervous. Mm -hmm. What does it say? Oh my God, I owe this money. I'm never going to be able to pay it off. What do I do? They don't realize, again, that they could lose their driver's license or their passport, and that there are certain things they could do. First of all, maybe they're currently not collectible. Maybe it pays for them to let the government take money out of their salary. New York State only takes 10% of the gross wages. The IRS is the exact opposite. They take almost everything and leave you nothing. It's really a negotiation tactic to come and say, hey, let's talk. What could we do here? So there are a number of opportunities to call the government. They may be taking money out of your bank account. How many times is there a levy? So on the federal level, they give you notice in advance. You get a number of notices, and then one is the last one that says, final notice of intent to levy. They're about to take money out of your bank account. You could go to an appeal. You don't want to even get that far, though, right? I mean, is there a benefit to realizing through your accountant that you haven't withheld, you haven't paid enough, and getting in front of it and alerting them? Or do you just kind of sit back and wait for those letters to start coming in? Right. It depends on your cash flow situation. We get calls all the time, actually, from very wealthy people accountants, attorneys themselves are getting into trouble. They know they're going to get a bonus. They know that they're not going to, they don't have the money at the moment. Should I file now? Because filing alerts everybody that you owe money right now. Should I wait? What should I do? And so in each situation, we take a look and we give advice on how to proceed. Sometimes it helps actually to get those notices and then go to appeals and you get in front of a human, whether it's in person or on Zoom or whatever, a phone call and work out a deal. Uh, You'd be surprised how Certainly during COVID times, the IRS came out with relief initiatives that you're not going to default certain installment agreement or they're not going to do a lien or there were certain circumstances, depending on whether you were working with a revenue officer or not. Right. And so there are opportunities to get help. Okay. But first you have to do is open those envelopes and face the facts. And then don't answer them and contact somebody who could help you. Right. Somebody with the legal and the accounting background, right. right? Now, again, I always say that the IRS in New York State does the marketing for me when they put pressure on people. So when they say, oh, we're delaying the due date of the tax return or the due date of 
when you owe the money, don't worry about it during a pandemic, people relax until they right. realize, oh my God, I still owe that money. It's just creating a backlog of problems, that's all. That's right, all. And, and now the government, the is they're starting to come back. There yeah. was a tremendous backlog and a tremendous delay, and now they're starting to send out notices and starting audits again and starting collection action, and so the phone is ringing nonstop. Okay. It's crazy. So listen, we always try to give people actionable ideas, right? Yeah. And actionable things. Can you share three things that people, individuals, business owners, entrepreneurs can do to make sure they stay out of trouble and do not need to contact you? What are three things that they could do? Sure. I would say keep complete and accurate records to justify any information that's on that tax return. Certainly that's going to help if you get audited. File your return on time. And even if you can't pay, file the return and then talk to a professional about your payment options. Sometimes you could just do a payment agreement right online. The IRS allows it. You could call up. You could mail something in. New York State now allows it for certain amounts, 20000 or less. You could even do an offer and compromise these days with New York State if you're an individual. I think if the amount is 10000 or less. So there are certain options that can help. And certainly act on any notices. Don't ignore them. Otherwise, you're going to start having collection action. And then once they start notifying you, deal with it. Okay. All right. I think those are very actionable and people could take today. So I'm going to actually throw in one other question I have for you, because I know this has been coming up a lot on my phone, whether it's at home or the cell phone. So I think people are probably also getting this. So myth or fact, the IRS will call you because I know I'm getting a lot of phone calls that claim to be the IRS. And I think it would be good to have you address that. Is it a myth or a fact? Or is the IRS only going to get in touch with you via mail? Yeah, so I have to say there's a lot of scams out there. I don't think that the IRS is calling people. I think they're doing it through the mail. And even through the mail, I'm seeing a lot of scams. And so you really have to check out whether the piece of paper you got that's asking for personal and confidential information is real. Yeah, I, I don't think the IRS is calling anybody either. I think the vast majority of it's happening through the mail. So- Listen, it's been a pleasure having you, Karen, and we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question. This is the Midland Money Mindset, and you've given a, a lot of our listeners a lot to think about, but what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success? I love that question. So I video chatted with my two grandchildren and spoke to my amazingly active parents who go out dancing four nights a week. Oh, nice. How old are they? My father's going to be 89 next oh, week. Oh, God bless. And he goes to work Monday to Friday. He loves going to work. And my mother is, I shouldn't say her age out loud. That's okay. That's all right. <laughs> but she's Do close they, by. <laughs> is there a specific type of dancing they like? Yeah, they love ballroom dancing. They're wow, very active in the ballroom dance Good world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're amazing people. They've been great role models starting from when I was young, as I told you, sitting around the kitchen table. Yeah. And all they right. still have this great, amazing, positive attitude. And thank God they're healthy. Awesome. Sounds like a great way to start the day. And we'll have all this information in the show notes. But if people want to find you, connect with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. We're Tenenbaum Law. We're litaxattorney.com. I'm Karen Tenenbaum. You could call me at 631-465-5000 or email me at taxhelpline at litaxattorney.com. Awesome. And again, we'll have that all in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, Karen. It's been a pleasure having you and make it a great day. Thanks so much for having me. I want to thank Karen Tenenbaum for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Karen has created a niche for herself and her firm over the last several decades, helping individuals and business owners navigate the difficult area of tax on both the state and federal levels. Karen is also helping those who in the current environment are telecommuting and or looking to obtain residency outside of New York to do it in a compliant manner. 
Being proactive is clearly a benefit, and she is someone that can help you navigate the process. Karen and Tenenbaum Law can be found across all social media platforms, and all the contact information needed to find her and the company can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.